Welcome to Episode 5 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. What was the governance of the foundation at this point? Was it blind people uh, lobbying for blind people? No, not really. Governance of the foundation was the source of a lot of friction over the years. In New Zealand, disability policy and disability services have evolved haphazardly. And in the late 1880s, a group of church people formed an organization for the blind to provide them with care, schooling, amelioration, essentially. Over the years, they did a brilliant job because blind people became more educated, more capable, and therefore feisty. And over time, they wanted a greater say in the running of the organization. Ultimately, that led to the formation of what was called the Dominion Association of the Blind in 1945. So just five years after NFB was formed, and I suspect that NFB may have been some inspiration there. And over the years, the association started to become more vocal about changes to the foundation's constitution, which by that stage was enshrined in an act of parliament, which is very unusual to have an organization whose constitution is in an act of parliament. And of course, acts of parliament are notoriously difficult to change because politicians have to change them and they're not particularly bothered about the constitution of a blindness organization. So there were various changes made over the years. And one of the big advocacy platforms of the association for a long time was the concept of parity. The board of the foundation, which at that stage comprised 14 members, should comprise 50% blind people, 50% sighted people. And over time, various ministers intervened in various ways, some legislatively, some just through the appointment process, and kind of brought that about. So the board was put there by voluntary committee. Four of the appointments were put there by the uh, government. And it was it was kind of a hodgepodge, really. And so in 1995, it was the 50th anniversary of the association. And I was given the job, among others, of reading a history that had been written about the association to celebrate the 50th anniversary. And I remember reading this at home and realizing, like this bolt out of the blue, that governance reform of the foundation was unfinished business and that it was time to finish it. And I remember calling the chief executive of the foundation at home and I said to him, I've been reading this book, which is called Quest for Equity, by the way, and I think it's time we got people together to have a discussion about the future of the way the foundation is governed. And I subsequently learned that the Minister of Education had sort of signaled that they weren't overly happy with the idea of the Act of Parliament being an instrument of governance for the foundation anyway. So he said, that's a good idea. Let's get a group of people together and write a paper for discussion. Well, the first mistake we made was that the group of people we got together were extremely capable focused, committed to self-determination, and they were all men. So we instantly alienated unnecessarily a massive number of women who felt excluded from this initial process just through sheer stupidity. Lesson learned. But we did put this paper out, and the board of the foundation immediately got angsty about this because they felt that this was a personal threat, sort of a personal affront that somehow the chief executive, I guess because of my initiation, had seized control of this process. And they felt that governance of the foundation was an issue for the board. And I came back and I said, I don't think it is because you guys have vested interests. You, you like the status quo. You're there because of the status quo. I don't think that the current governors of the foundation should be determining the future governance of the foundation, that's for blind people to determine. And then they came back, some of them did anyway, some of them came back and said, well, yeah, the blind people are actually beneficiaries of a trust, that is the foundation. And you can't have the beneficiaries of the trust kind of calling the term. So it was a very feisty debate. 
and and it's a very very long one. In the end, we formed a task force. The board basically was facing a mutiny from blind people on this. I mean, blind people, certainly the ones who were connected and vocal, a lot of them were were just on a roll with it by then. I had managed to make sure that we convened a meeting of the association's national council to get the association's full buy-in. We were on a roll with this. And then on the 28th of April, 1996, I even remember the date, there was a meeting convened of all interested consumer organizations where the whole governance question was discussed and it was facilitated independently because we'd made the case that the existing board didn't possess the moral authority to progress this. And right at the appropriate time, a gentleman named Don McKenzie, he was the Mr. McKenzie I referred to earlier when I was talking about the School for the Blind, who's made a huge contribution to the blindness scene in New Zealand, been chair of the board of the foundation twice. He was not on the board of the foundation at this point. He moved a resolution. And I've learned a lot from Don over the years about reading the mood of a meeting and knowing exactly when to propose a resolution to get an outcome. And Don is a master at this, not only at knowing when to do it, but what to put in a resolution. (laughs) And Don moved a resolution at the right time that suggested that a governance task force be established and that its members be. And he listed a series of people that were very much representative of the sector, but who were, I guess, predisposed to giving this governance reform thing a good shot. And so the board had to surrender their plans for governance reform and convene an independent governance task force on which I think they had the chairman and maybe one other representative. It got really pretty serious. I'd written an article just before Heidi was born in 1996, which I published in the association's magazine called Focus, called Much Ado About Governance. And there was a paragraph in that article that the chairman of the board really objected to. And Heidi was born by then. She had hyperglycemia, so she was in the neonatal unit for a while. It was pretty tense for Amanda and me. And I was at home one day worrying about Heidi, and I got a call from the chairman of the board who said, if you don't retract what you said in that article, we are going to sue you. And I said, well, can you imagine the fun of the Foundation for the Blind using charitable donations, because that's how it exists, to sue a blind person who is a consumer leader and also a senior member of your management team at the same time uh, just for you know making a, a point about governance reform you know make my day basically but that was the kind of climate we were in it got really hostile the process went on until 2001 And by that stage, there was a new chief executive because the board had dispensed with the old one in no small part because of their disgruntlement over him being a party to initiating this discussion about governance reform. The new CEO was not happy either. When she was recruited, it sort of slipped the board's mind, or I think the chairman of the board's mind, to mention that there was this governance argy-bargy going on. And so when she took the job, she had no idea until one of us started to talk to her about this governance reform exercise that it was going on. And she wanted to create a new strategic plan for the organization and a new operational plan for the organization. And she felt that pending all of that, the governance reform should be suspended. And we said, no way. You know, this was late 1998 when she came on board. We'd come too far. We'd done at least one round of consultation by then, we had a draft, we had ideas, and we weren't stopping this thing. So it had caused a lot of acrimony by this time in 2001, even with the new chief executive. But she was pragmatic. In the end, she realized that board members will come and go, chief executives will come and go, but blind people stay. And blind people have the momentum for this. We're not going to give up. We want our governance reform. And over time, the debate had become more sophisticated. So we moved on from this idea of parity, 50% blind, 50% sighted on the board, to something a little bit different. And I remember at one conference of the New Zealand Association of the Blind and Partially Blind, as it was then, 
Don McKenzie got up and he moved a resolution that set aside, but not rescinded, the idea of parity. I'm still not sure what that means, and I rib him about it to this day, actually, because I don't know what the difference is between setting something aside but not rescinding it. Anyway, there was a move on from parity, and it was my view, and I was kind of trying to move this governance issue along, to saying it doesn't actually matter whether the board members are blind or sighted. Blindness does not in and of itself qualify you to help to govern a $20 million a year as it was then organization. What matters is who these people are accountable to. They shouldn't be accountable to the volunteers. They shouldn't be accountable to the government. They need to be accountable directly to blind people. And that is what we were fighting for. And in the end, in 2001, we finally reached an agreement where the board said, okay, let's put this draft constitution that your task force has come up with to a referendum. And I think some of the board members were pretty confident that the rank and file blind people, the ones who weren't vociferous, the ones who weren't the agitators, once they had a say, they would be okay because they would say, okay, you know, well, the foundation's doing a good job. Let's not rock the boat. So somewhat reluctantly, I agreed. Uh, we agreed. I was president of the association too by then to a referendum. And we got, uh, I think it was like an 85% yes vote. I mean, it was a massive, massive endorsement of the, of the reforms. Excellent. By that stage, I had, I had left the employ of the foundation because it was a really untenable situation for me to be in. It's okay when the climate of dialogue is positive and mutual. When it was in the mode we were in, it was just a terrible, stressful situation for me to be having a foot in both camps. The conference of the Association of Blind Citizens that I chaired in 1999 was particularly tricky because we had some in-committee sessions talking about strategy in terms of going to the government and telling them that we were not happy with the board of the foundation and we ended up voting no confidence in the chairman of the board of the Blind Foundation, which to the best of my knowledge is only the second time the association has ever done that. And it's only ever done it twice in its 70 plus years of existence. So it was a tough thing to be a senior manager of an organization with a board in whom the blind community had no confidence. It has been done before. But I think there was an increasing awareness of potential conflicts of interest. So I had left in 1999, but I completed my second two-year term as president of the Association of Blind Citizens in October of 2001, and I didn't seek re-election. I felt that two terms was enough, particularly in this really highly toxic environment, I felt that it might be appropriate for the blind community to have some new leadership at that point. And in a way, it was a good focus for me because I made it clear the year before, in October of 2000, that I wouldn't be seeking re-election. And that gave the community a chance to think about a new leader. But it also imposed a deadline on me to really try and get this governance thing resolved before I left office, which Luckily, with a lot of help from others, we did. And then under the Act of Parliament that we then had, the association had the right to put two members on the board and they put me there. And the chairman of the board came to me and he said, these are your reforms. Um, you know, they wouldn't have happened without your persistence in agitation. And I mean, there were lots of people who made this happen, people who really knuckled in and drafted the legalese and made sense of this broad vision. So it, I'm not saying I'm singularly responsible. It was a wonderful team effort. In particular, we were just so fortunate that there was a blind guy. He became blind later in life, actually, as a result of an accident, who was a lawyer. And he wrote a submission in one of the early stages of the governance task force's work. And when we read it, a lot of us thought, wow, this guy knows his stuff. Let's get him in here. So we got him in here and we co-opted him onto the task force. And I honestly am not sure that we would have completed the work of the task force and got this outcome that we did had it not been for Barry Preddle. So, so many people were integral to this finally taking place. But he, I guess I was the kind of constant agitator. So he came to me and he said, I'm going to not seek re-election 
as chairman of the board and I want you to succeed me. And I said, you cannot be serious. After all we've been through, all the difficult letters, the the confrontation, and now you want me, <laughs> now you're suggesting that I succeed you. I, you know, I said, there's an element on the board that's just going to go absolutely crazy about this idea. And he said, no, I'll bring them with me. And I said, you know, the chief executive and I haven't exactly had uh, positive relationships either. I don't particularly relish the idea of costing the foundation a chief executive. And he said, I've talked to the chief executive and the chief executive says, uh, if the board uh, has confidence in you, then she has confidence in you. So I was staggered to have been made chairman of the board uh, at the age of whatever it was, 32 or 33, of an organization that had spent so much time fighting what I was trying to do. But then all of a sudden, all these barriers had come down and I was in charge of implementing the reform, uh, shipping it through, making sure that all of our, all of our stakeholders uh, felt included, that we didn't lose too many people on the way, the goodwill of the public, all of that sort of thing. And then became the chairman of the board of the newly constituted organization. The day that we changed from being the foundation for the blind to the foundation of the blind was one of the proudest days of my life. So do you think the former chairman sort of saw the light, or do you think that he felt like he'd functionally been driven out? He was an interesting character. I mean, one of the things that saddens me about, particularly from a distance, watching political discourse in the United States right now is that it seems to me a lot of people really do hate one another. And even though Gordon Sanderson, who who was the chairman then, and I disagreed, we would still sit down and have a meal and and a drink and and talk about things. And so I I disagreed with his approach strongly, and he disagreed with mine. But we kind of respected one another. And I think he realized that he was not the man for this time. He was so vested in the status quo, and the status quo was disappearing, that the membership had made that very clear. And I suppose there was some degree of magnanimity about what he did. Or maybe, in a way, you know, there might have been a bit of mischief, too. You might have said, well, you know, you've made this bad Mosin. Now you can go and damn well lie in it. So I don't know. But um, I was not expecting that that would be the outcome. I never uh, expected that the governance reform would result in me taking the chairmanship. What was the impact of the governance reform? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think the impact was not entirely what I had anticipated. The impact was obviously that now blind people can elect the board of the foundation. A lot of people thought that that meant that the consumer movement could take their foot off the accelerator and that now that there was a foundation of the blind where blind people elected the board, the foundation could take on more of an advocacy role because the board was put there by blind people. That was never my intention. Just because the board is elected by blind people, it doesn't mean that there is any mechanism in place within a provider of blindness services to determine policy. The only way you can really determine policy is have a grassroots structure to debate these things, to bring them up to a national level, to discuss, to ultimately vote, and then to advocate. And I think there is real harm in the service provider also being the advocate because there can be a potential conflict of interest and it can blunt some of the arguments. If you're, for example, going to government and you're advocating for better funding of a particular area of service and you're the one providing that service, well, then it's easy for government to say, well, yeah, you would say that, wouldn't you? I mean, you, you, you'll benefit financially. So the consumer movement, I think, has been weakened. Some of that weakening has been a deliberate strategy on the part of, of some within the blindness organization here. So it's not the nirvana that it might have been. Some of that, I think, is due to personnel. But in the end, we've still secured that fundamental right to elect the board. And any time that the blind community in New Zealand chooses to, it can mobilize and affect change. And I do believe these things are cyclical and that eventually we will see some fixing of some of the issues that plague blindness in New Zealand at the moment. 
So does this mean that the National Association of Blind Citizens actually became less powerful and less effective in more recent years? In my opinion, they have, yes. But before all of that happened, we just glossed over the fact that you were president. Mm. Yeah. So I ran for vice president in 1995 and was elected to that. And then the presidency became vacant in 1997. That was a difficult call because I was still doing the government relations role for the foundation. The thing is, though, that in 1997, when I did this, when I stood for the office, when I put my nomination in, we were in a really harmonious period still. I mean, the governance reform thing was bubbling away, but fundamentally, we had a chief executive who was very friendly towards the needs of the blind consumer movement. And so it didn't seem like a stretch. In retrospect, it was a recipe for conflict and potential confusion, which I ultimately resolved in 1999 by leaving the foundation. And as president, do you feel like you were you were effective at the time? Did, did stuff get done under your watch? Stuff got done, yeah. We relocated the national office of the organization from Auckland to Wellington. Wellington is the capital. And Auckland is New Zealand's largest city where the foundation really grew up and was headquartered. And I felt that was a very important philosophical shift. When the association was formed in 1945, it was born from the workshops. There are a lot of uh, workshops that the Blind Institute, as it was then, ran, uh, providing employment for blind people, and they'd make cane furniture and different other things like that. And so the association was born of that union movement and the workshops and wanting better conditions and a greater say. By 1997, when I became president, I felt that the emphasis of the association should be on effecting change with government. And the best way to do that was to sort of get it out of that foundation bubble and move the national office to Wellington. So we did that. We changed the name, did some constitutional reform, and um, also, I think, increased the association's media presence. So I remember one of the first things that I did as president was do a media release on how Microsoft had broken the accessibility of Internet Explorer, I believe it was version 4. And there was a period for a while there when IE4 came out that um, it wasn't accessible to screen readers and they'd chosen to rush it out and then do the accessibility later. So I started doing these media releases and saying, you know, we will use whatever mechanisms we have, like New Zealand's Human Rights Act, to push this along. And it just gave us a higher profile. So I think I think it was pretty effective. And of course, the ultimate triumph was the governance reform, for sure. This is about the time that the internet was coming into its own. And I'm, I'm wondering if sort of the politics of blindness in New Zealand were was impacted by access to information about blindness organizations around the world. Yes, I think so. I was certainly, and a whole number of us who were young people moving things along then, were very influenced by the NFB stuff. And I mentioned how I'd got access to that through CompuServe and the bulletin boards. But now it was much easier to get access to that information and deliver it to sort of disseminate it to a wider group of people. So it was nice to be able to connect with people around the world, discuss these things and gain ideas. And certainly the NFB philosophy was a huge driving force for us. You uh, wrote a great document, and we'll be discussing some of the contents. Uh, this was sort of on the history of ACB radio. And one of the, you know, just sort of notes that you dropped early on was that Jamal Masrui was really responsible for one of the sort of the, the first sort of social activism that seemed to revolve around being connected. And I, I knew nothing of this. Yes, and that even predates the real internet era. As far as I remember, that goes back to the whole sort of FidoNet, Blinklink days. But this is where Jamal was really pushing NFB to make employment its top priority. I was inspired by that. I thought this new form of communication is a tool we can use. And um, we were doing some interesting things. I remember because I had both the association and the foundation role, and I was networking pretty well with consumer groups anyway, we did a, a petition where 
all the blindness organizations took these petition forms, put them in offices, took them to branch meetings, all that kind of stuff, asking the government to look at the historic underfunding of blindness services. So a lot of that kind of activism stuff had its inspiration from seeing what was going on overseas. I want to pick up on something that you just sort of dropped as sort of an afterthought when you were talking about uh, becoming president of the association, and that is that you gained some no- notoriety by running for political office. Can you can you elaborate a bit? Yes. In 1993, I was approached by a new political party, and this really goes back to something I was talking about previously, both major political parties had lost the confidence of a lot of people because people essentially felt that if they had purchased something from these political parties, they'd be entitled to their money back because of misrepresentation. So political confidence was very low and a new party had been formed that was really capitalizing on that lack of political confidence. And somehow through, I don't know, various connections, they came to my house one weekend and said, we we would like you to um, stand for parliament in your local electorate, which is kind of the equivalent for American folks of, of a congressional district and what uh, in the UK they would call a constituency. And it had been something that I had thought about doing at some point in my life. And so since they were there asking me to, and since I also felt some degree of frustration about the status quo, I decided that I would do this, and towards the end of the campaign, I took a month off work and did lots of door knocking and fundraising and meeting people, and it was a bit of a novelty, I guess, because I was the first congenitally blind person to stand for parliament. New Zealand did have a totally blind MP in the 1920s. He was blinded as a result of serving in World War One. so this was a little bit of a first, and it was a real experience. I Got about two and a half thousand votes, I think. And it was um, obviously an unsuccessful campaign, but something I kind of cherish. Good, good experience exposing me to the way some people are just totally indifferent to political activities. You know, you knock on doors and you talk to people and you realize while you may live and breathe this kind of stuff, a lot of people just don't care. Well, I'm really curious about this because running as a candidate for a new third party was likely a fool's errand. You probably weren't going to get elected. At least that's how it looks to the observer from the outside. And if indeed that was true, what was the point? Very good question. And there was a method to the madness. The point was that because of this discontent, dissatisfaction with the status quo, there had been a referendum in 1992. So I stood for parliament in 93. There'd been a referendum in 1992 that was pretty much forced on the political system of the day about changing our electoral system. And in 1992, we had to choose which electoral system we preferred if we were going to change the electoral system. The one that was chosen was a derivative of a German system called mixed member proportional. And in 1993, at the same time as the election that I stood in, there was a referendum that pitted that system, the mixed member proportional system, against the current one that we were using. I knew that I was very unlikely to win that election, but it was also, for me, a chance for the political science geek in me to have a platform to campaign for reform of the entire electoral system, mindful that if we got that reform through, then I could potentially have a much better chance in the future under that proportional representation system of becoming a member of parliament. And so we did get that change through. The mixed member proportional system is the law of the land now and has been since the 1996 election. We have elections every three years in New Zealand. So that was a success. And because of the proportional model, that third party, New Zealand First, has on a couple of occasions held the balance of power. And so it is a very influential party, even though it's small. Now, didn't you run again? Yes. So in 1999, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, I was 
kind of between jobs due to the pressure of the governance reform debate that was going on. I left my position as a senior manager of the Foundation for the Blind. So I was at a bit of a loose end and and they approached me again. The timing was terrible because that political party, New Zealand First, had had an awful three years in government by that stage. Because of the proportional representation system, they became part of the first government that we ever had in New Zealand under proportional representation. And the party split itself asunder. It was a mess. And so although I was ranked 12th on the party list, which in many cases would be a winnable position, it was not a winnable position in 1999. Did you know it going in or did you suspect it going in? I had a hunch that the odds were against me, but I also felt that there might be the opportunity to turn the tide a little bit. And I also think it's important, even if you know that you may not have a good chance on that particular occasion. It's important, I think, to send a signal that as a person with a disability, you're out there standing for elected office. And I hope that it might encourage other people to do that because despite the fact that we have this proportional system, we've actually only ever had one MP with a significant disability since that model took shape. When you were campaigning, did any potential detractors, people who would not feel comfortable voting for a a blind MP, talk to you candidly about why they were concerned? Yes. One of the great things that I loved about campaigning, especially in the 93 election, was the public meetings. If there's one thing I absolutely love, it's getting up on a stage and giving a speech. So I loved the public meetings, especially when I could be political and a bit snarky. And at the end of one political rally that I had, where we filled the hall, and it was all very exciting, and we had a Q&A session, and this man got up in the theatre, and he said, you're going to have a hard job if you get elected. Who's going to be your eyes? And I thought that the mob was going to attack this poor guy, you know, and they were booing and carrying on and calling him names. And I said, simmer down, guys, you know, for every person who asks the question, who has the courage to ask the question, there's probably 10 who want to. And so I was able to address it and talk about the technology that I use and how when you have been blind all your life, you're not dependent on sight. And we sort of made it a teachable moment. So yes, it it did come up. I also just love the camaraderie of it. When you have a whole team of people who get together from the campaign manager to the workers who distribute leaflets and all that kind of thing, who believe in you enough to volunteer their time. It's an incredibly humbling thing, you know. Um, It was a process I really enjoyed. And how did you attract those people to work on your campaign? Were they sent to you indirectly by the party, or were they people you lobbied on your own? A little bit of both. So the party did have a, a wee bit of a machine, And the leader of that political party, who still is the leader of that particular party, a guy named Winston Peters, he's quite uh, popular. He's He's got a following in his own right. So people wanted to volunteer for anyone who was working with him. But also I did tap into people I'd worked with on the radio. My former boss at one of the radio stations I worked for, who had always been particularly supportive of me and gave me that all-important morning drive break, I asked him to be my campaign manager, and he was a great advocate and had a lot of business contacts and things. So it's all about just sort of tapping into a variety of networks. And the phone calls were interesting too, you know, when you're running for office, and especially in New Zealand, we're, we're a smaller country, and so you'd get phone calls at all hours of the day and night from people desperate to know, you know, what are you going to do about the yeah, the, the the cats in O'Shaughnessy Street or something, you know. <laughs> so uh, it, it was a real education for me. Would you ever consider doing it again? If you'd have asked me that two or three weeks before recording this, I would have emphatically told you no. And the reason for that is I think it's too much of a hill to climb and too stressful to be totally blind and also have a significant hearing impairment. But... In just the last few weeks, I have updated my hearing aid technology, 
and I've had a marked improvement in my ability to function in all kinds of environments that rendered me pretty much completely dysfunctional. So I wouldn't rule it out now. It's funny that you uh, you mentioned your hearing impairment because I wanted to ask you about that. Did that come on in this 92 to 99 period of time? It did. Norrie's disease, which is the cause of my blindness, comes with a free degenerative hearing condition thrown in, which is just great. You know, I just wish I'd got the steak knives too. People told me at high school that I might not be hearing as well as other people here, and I didn't really think that was the case. But definitely, when I started getting into my 20s, I started getting these really significant and and quite scary bouts of sudden dramatic hearing loss. It was like like you were wearing an isolating pair of headphones and then somebody had just turned the left channel off on you, for example, and you just instantly lost almost all the hearing in one ear. And the first time it happened to me, it really scared the hell out of me. They rushed me straight to a doctor. Then I got admitted to hospital. And for a a wee while, when I started having these bouts, that's how it was handled. And I had this piece of paper And it was basically an admission slip to the hospital, to the ear, nose, and throat ward. And if I had a bout of hearing loss, suddenly one ear, it could be the left, it could be the right, got switched off, I would have Amanda normally take me to the nearest hospital and I would present this paper and I would get straight in. It was like a bypassing of the normal processes that we have in New Zealand because they considered that because I was totally blind, these hearing bouts were very high risk and they weren't going to mess around. So, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to our public health taxpayer-funded system in New Zealand for taking that so seriously and doing that. So they would admit me to hospital, put me on this intravenous drip and try a wide range of treatments. And they were never sure whether any of them worked. They were never sure whether if you just left it on its own, whether it would just fix itself. They were willing to just try anything to try and bring it back, and and it would always come back. Eventually, I got to the point where I realized that, you know, I'm just going to sit one out. I just got so sick of the hospital <laughs> admissions that I, I, I just took the decision on one occasion, look, I'm just going to rest up a little bit and see what happens, and it does come back. You know, it doesn't It doesn't seem to benefit from any treatment. Interestingly, since I have gone low carb in recent years, I get my audiogram done pretty regularly. My audiogram has just stopped shifting downwards. My hearing loss hasn't deteriorated for years since I've been probably, what, three or four years since I've been doing low carb and the hearing bounce have stopped. I I don't get the sudden hearing loss anymore. So I'm a little confused. It sounds like you got these sudden bouts of hearing loss and then things would come back approximately to where they were before, but you also have progressive hearing loss? Yes, they seem to be unrelated. They would do an audiogram and after those sudden bouts, usually things would return to normal, but then there was a more sort of insidious loss that almost was so minor over time that it could kind of creep up on you. And that's the thing that I've been really confronting over the years. But at this particular period in my life, and there's no guarantee that it's going to stay this way, it's sort of in remission. It's wonderful. It's a big deal because some people with Norries do end up opting for cochlear implants because of their deterioration in hearing. How did you cope with all of this emotionally? I mean, this is real different than blindness for someone who was congenitally blind. This is like losing something. Well, it made me a lot more empathetic towards people with deteriorating vision, I can tell you that. So in that sense, it was a blessing. I I hope that it made me a more um, empathetic person, a a better person for having lived through it. But it was tough. You know, it took me a long time to get used to. And there were all sorts of theories about what brought on these sudden hearing loss bouts. Some people theorize that stress exacerbates them. And I'm not sure whether that's the case or not, you know, but again, 
I implemented a whole lot of changes in my life in recent years, not just the low carb thing, but also I meditate for two periods of 15 minutes a day. So it's possible that because I'm a much more relaxed, less stressed person, maybe that is what's contributing to the lack of these sudden hearing bouts appearing at the moment. I'm not sure. (laughs) I guess we'll see what happens when I become a chief executive. What does hearing loss do to your ability to appreciate music? It is quite significant because hearing aids historically do not have a wide frequency response. So your world is kind of being filtered through this straw for the purposes of intelligibility with speech. So what a lot of hearing aid users do is take the hearing aids out and maybe, if necessary, use some sort of equalizer and then plug headphones in and crank it up so that you can really appreciate the music with the full hearing that you have. Uh, When I work in my studio, because if I crank it up too much, I'm going to get feedback from the mics. I do use my hearing aids with direct audio input, which means I can plug them straight into the mixer and work that way. But your enjoyment definitely takes a hit, that's for sure. With the new hearing aids I've just gotten, I'm really surprised. I'm listening to a lot of acoustic and classical music at the moment because I never thought I would be able to hear that richness again, the kind of highs, the subtlety of a a violin or a guitar. It's back. Uh, So technology is coming a long way. Contrast the original hearing aids you got and their technical qualities with these new ones. The very first hearing aids I got were purely analog. They were basically an amplifier and an equalizer. They would equalize based on your audiogram, and then you turn them on, and they just make everything louder. In some ways, that was a good thing, because newer hearing aids are sophisticated computers. And I remember getting my first digital hearing aids in 1996, Senso from Midex, and they were making a lot of decisions about what was a relevant background noise and what was uh, sound that should be accentuated. And so it was doing EQ and limiting in compression in real time to try and help you hear. The trouble is a blind person's requirements are quite different, especially when you're trying to navigate in traffic and do things like that. If certain sounds are filtered out, that's actually an existential threat. So it's always been a bit of a battle to balance the smarts of these digital hearing aids with the environmental clues that a blind person needs. The aids that I have just got now are called the Open S, and I have the Open S1 from Oticon. And they have flipped the traditional digital hearing paradigm on their heads. It's really interesting. They're using a concept called open hearing. And the idea is that they want to give you as close to regular hearing as you can manage, but only then when someone speaks to you or when clearly you're needing to engage with some specific thing, it will amplify that temporarily. So it's making 56,000 attempts per second to listen to your environment. And at that speed, it's almost so seamless that you can't tell that the aids are changing what they're doing. It's um, the closest thing to emulating the way the human brain focuses on sound that I've ever experienced. And I've been taking it through all sorts of amazing um, tests. Like I started off in a fairly low noise cafe, but even then, when we went to that cafe, Bonnie would always order for me to save me any embarrassment of not being able to hear all the questions or the instructions or whatever. We nailed that one, hit it out of the park. I could hear every single word of both sides of that transaction. And then we sat down and We were able to talk to each other across the table. So then we upped the ante and we went to a really noisy restaurant, a horrible environment, high ceilings, wooden floors, music playing away, and it was sweet. And it's it's so emotional when you get something back that you think you've lost forever. Yes, I I I can't I can't imagine it. Except except wonderment. Yeah. How long have you had these now at the time we're recording? Uh, at the time we're recording, just a couple of weeks. And my audiologist and I, we're BFFs, right? Because she, she likes the fact that I can't lip read. I'm really telling it like it is and that I can articulate the issues in a way that she as an audiologist 
understands and can work with. So yesterday, as we record this, I had an appointment with her and basically I could have cancelled it, but I just wanted to experience her expression when I went in there and said, there's nothing for you to do. These things are incredible. They've given me so much quality of life back. And she said, God, if if you're saying this, it really just makes my work as an audiologist worthwhile. So it was a good experience. I see you becoming a poster boy for this company. Well, that is very prophetic of you, actually, because I have been contacted by them and they said, we've heard about your story. You're one of the first people in this region to try these aids. And it sounds like they're just going really well. Could we do a YouTube video of you with a testimonial? Could we publish some remarks from you? Have you got a photo? And I thought to myself, I might be able to do a bit of wider good here because I think I would be able to give quite a compelling testimonial. You know, if I believe in a product, I think I can articulate that quite well. And so I said to them, I'll do all of these things on one condition. I want you to put me in touch with the people who really design these stuff. If you are a hearing aid wearer, you know that it's really hard to get to the people who actually manufacture them. If you use technology like JAWS, for example, or a lot of assistive technology, you know the people to shoulder tap and you can reach out to them and talk about a potential feature that you want. With hearing aid companies, it's really, really hard to break through to the actual decision makers, to go beyond the front line. And so I said to them, I have done product management before. I know about audio and I'd like to think I'm reasonably articulate. The market of blind hearing aid wearers is not particularly well served. There are accessibility things to think about in terms of the app, in terms of accessories with push buttons that blink little lights, depending on what they do. There's a lot we could do together. So sure, I'll sing the praises of your hearing aids because I really believe in them. I'm grateful for what they've done. But first, put me to take me to your leader. <laughs> but, but irrespective of how that pans out, it's a paradigm that I hope that blind people who also wear hearing aids will at least try and experience. Hearing aid and, and hearing loss, they're very individual things. I don't think there's a single bit of assistive technology that's more personal, to be honest, because there's such a variety of hearing loss and the way that you respond to different remedial technology. But the concept is so obviously blind-friendly, not filtering out your environmental clues that you need to know what's going on, that it's certainly worth a look, I think. A couple of last questions on this topic. How has your experience been with audiologists over the years? You have to find a good one. And I have actually just gently extracted myself, maybe when moving to a new city, from a relationship with an audiologist that clearly isn't working. Some audiologists that I've worked with, only a few, but some, have kind of considered me overly whiny, overly demanding. A good audiologist who really understands what hearing means to a blind person will relish the challenge. And I've been very fortunate to work with people who, you know, say, look, bring it on. We're going to try and see what we can make work. We're going to push the boundaries. But it does involve a lot of confidence. I'm very fortunate that I know audio and it involves many, many appointments usually and subtle tweaking. And it does concern me that a lot of blind people are affected in their quality of life because they don't have that knowledge or that confidence. And um, I guess I, I wish I had had time in my life to perhaps be a better advocate for people who can't advocate for themselves. But that's one of the reasons why I started blogging on this topic. I think I did myself a little bit of rep damage by not fessing up to people about my hearing loss earlier. I would get feedback from people say at conferences or whatever, people who were really excited about meeting me because they'd heard me on internet radio or podcasts or whatever, and then they'd meet me and they would say to people, well, man, he's really aloof. And it's not that, it's just that I was having trouble hearing in some crazy, noisy conference environment and people just didn't know that I wore hearing aids. And so when I actually did start talking about this, and it wasn't really until 2013 when I started Mosin Consulting that I started talking very openly and publicly about wearing hearing aids, 
<laughs> Quite a few people were, oh, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's true in so many areas, isn't it? If, if people understand something, it puts things in a whole different light. Yeah, and I don't know why I was so reluctant, to be honest. I can't put myself back in that headspace to think, what was I trying to prove by not mentioning that I had a fairly significant hearing impairment and wore hearing aids? I don't really know. Maybe you were a little unsure of how well you were going to cope with it, and so sort of admitting it you know, made it more real. Yeah, I know that's weird. Maybe. May, may I, I think one thing I have learned over the years is that when you are authentic, warts and all, it tends to be for the best. You don't have a persona to maintain. That's why I'm not hesitant about talking about my atheism or why I have um, written some fairly personal blog posts over the years because – yeah, I am what I am. Um, some people will detest me for it, and I understand that. When you have a public profile, as I have had the privilege or misfortune to have had all through my life since I was four years old, you're going to annoy people. And when you're in a position of leadership or responsibility and you have to make decisions, you're going to cause people to be disgruntled with the decisions that you've made. But if you're authentic, at least people get what they get, and, and then it's up to them how they how they take that. How do you manage crossing the streets with hearing aids? To be honest, I haven't been doing in recent years a lot of independent travel. It's funny, I, I travel the world, but I get meet and assist at airports until Ira came along, and now I, now I use Ira at airports. We are fortunate in New Zealand in that quite a lot of street crossings, I think the majority of busy street crossings, are audio tactual. So they make a sound to tell you when it's okay to cross the street. And they also have a little pin that pops out at the bottom of the light pole. So if it's a noisy environment, someone with a hearing impairment can put their finger on this thing and it goes ping and you can, <laughs> you can feel when it's time to cross. I do a bit of that, but I guess I've got myself into a position where largely I get to where I need to go via sort of Uber and, and taxis and things. I've got a different lifestyle coming up because of a new job. That was one of the reasons why I felt taking a month off between Ira and starting at Workbridge would be a really good time for me to just do a refresh of my hearing aid technology so that my brain could adapt without me being under pressure. And also I could try these sorts of things like traffic and things. Who found that there was this new technology? Was it was it you or was it the audiologist? It was a combination. I read a lot of blogs and um, other forums about hearing aid technology, so I'm aware of the new brands. And originally we tried another technology before this because we decided, or my audiologist decided, that servicing was more rapid in New Zealand for this particular manufacturer. And obviously that's a factor. But the iOS app wasn't particularly accessible. I found the audio quite muddy, whole range of things. So then we tried the second option on the list, which was the one that intrigued me from a technical standpoint the most and really hit the jackpot. Next time, Jonathan talks about the origin, operation, and expansion of ACB radio. Plus, we'll get to hear some rare air checks. Those things and more on Episode 6 of In the Arena, the Jonathan Mosen Story. I'm Glenn Gordon. Thanks for listening.